Welcome to this Federalist Society Faculty Book Podcast, discussing Professor Lester Brickman's new book, Lawyer Barons, What Their Contingency Fees Really Cost America. Thank you for tuning in. Lawyer Barons exposes the high but unseen costs of litigation driven by contingency fees, a method of financing that is said to improve access to the courts for personal injury victims with limited means. Author Lester Brickman argues that there is more to the picture than just improving access, however that the contingency fee also enables lawyers and judges to collaborate and incentivize litigation to a degree that distorts our civil justice system and imposes other financial and social costs. Lester Brigman, a professor at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law, is joined by critical commenter Peter Shuck, Simon E. Baldwin Professor Emeritus of Law at Yale University, to discuss the book. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speakers. And now, Professor Brickman. Lawyer barons, what their contingency fees really cost America, which was published by Cambridge Press, is about the effects of contingency fees on the American civil justice system. The point of the book is that of all the elemental forces shaping our legal and political systems, the effect of contingency fees is the most underappreciated. Now, to be sure... The contingency fee is key to the courthouse for most persons wrongfully injured. And while the public senses that lawyers manipulate the civil justice system to serve their own ends, few are aware of the formidable costs that come with the benefit. My book, which distills over 20 years of my research on contingency fees, sets out to change that by exposing the hidden costs of contingency fees and analyzing how lawyers manipulate our civil justice system to best serve their interests, I present the intellectual architecture that should underpin all tort reform efforts. This is the first book that analyzes the true cost imposed by contingency fees. In it, I challenge the view of most tort scholars that tort lawyers' profits, though great, are socially beneficial. So contrary to a broad consensus in contemporary legal scholarship, I argue that the inordinately high level of financial incentives available to lawyers to litigate distort the objectives of our civil justice system and impose other unconscionable social costs. My goal is to bring about reform of the civil justice system by exposing the corrupting influence of powerful financial incentives and what I call the seamy underworld of contingency fees that the bar and the courts not only tolerate, but in some ways protect and even nurture. As a teacher of legal ethics for over 40 years, I analyzed the ethical justification for charging contingency fees. Simply stated, lawyers are entitled to charge a premium for assuming the risk of no recovery or a low recovery, and therefore no fee or a small fee. Nonetheless, I conclude that lawyers routinely charge substantial risk premiums in the form of standard contingency fees, usually about a third, even in cases where there is no meaningful liability risk and a high probability of a substantial recovery. This is an occurrence that generates windfall fees that can effectively amount to thousands of dollars an hour. In addition, as I discuss in the book, lawyers benefit from enormous economies of scale in class actions, other large-scale litigations, They do not share these benefits with their clients. They take advantage of complex 
federal and state regulatory systems conceived of and applied by lawyers. They use their influence, if not control, over the content and application of ethics rules to advance their self-interest, and they use the bar's monopoly power over the practice of law to prevent competition from lower-cost non-lawyers. Lawyers claim to be entrepreneurs because they put their time and capital at risk, but in fact they use careful case screening methods to control risk, and they prevail in a very high percentage of cases. So in fact, instead of entrepreneurs, they mostly are what the great economist Adam Smith called rent-seekers. Now, rent-seeking lawyers manipulate the legal and political environment to extract unearned gain. And one consequence is that tort lawyers have been able to enormously increase their inflation-adjusted incomes from contingency fees over the past 50 years. And this is coincident with the great expansion of the scope of liability of the tort system. And I argue that much of this increase is unearned income, that is, what the economists call rents, and that tort lawyers obtain these by using positional advantages to shield themselves from market forces. And I contend that their soaring profits have led to higher levels of litigation. It's beyond cavil that at some level of tort lawyers' profitability, financial incentives to litigate perversely affect our civil justice system. That is, too high incentives in the form of greatly increased effective hourly rates distort the objectives of the tort system and pose other social costs. And one such effect is substantially higher volumes of tort litigation, which I contend are not justified by increased levels of injury or the need to induce potential injurers to increase investment in product safety. Despite these effects, most legal scholars have largely ignored the role of increased profitability of tort litigation in contributing to a dysfunctional wealth transfer. Increased profits from contingency fees have also underwritten vast expansion of the range of acts that can give rise to tort liability. A modern-day Rip Van Winkle, who awoke after a decades-long slumber, would be amazed to learn of the many new ways that he could be held liable to others. I also contend that the ability of lawyers to use positional advantages to garner billions of dollars in unearned fees is intimately intertwined with the profession's self-regulatory status, a status that flows from state Supreme Court's arrogation to themselves of the power to exclusively regulate the practice of law. Armed with greatly increased and often unearned profits, tort lawyers have engaged in collaborative efforts with judges to significantly increase the scope of liability of the tort system. And I contend that financial incentives in the form of increasing profits from tort litigation have been a primary driver of the expansion of the scope of liability of the tort system. I examine in great detail in the book the huge growth in class actions and the tens of billions of dollars in fees they generate for lawyers. Indeed, nothing more epitomizes the ascendancy of the contingency fee into the pantheon of elemental forces driving our legal and political systems than does the contingency fee-driven class action where lawyers have been empowered to scoop up thousands and even millions of persons to join in a suit even if the large majority of those persons so conscripted would be opposed to bringing the suit. Now, I conclude the book with some detailed proposals for reform 
of a broken system. Among them, the proposals, I spotlight what has been known as the early offer proposal, which I conceived in collaboration with Jeff O'Connell at the University of Virginia Law School and Michael Horowitz of the Hudson Institute. This proposal would enforce traditional but long dormant ethical rules by directing lawyers to apply their contingency fees only to the value they add to tort cases. Finally, I also offer some proposals for how American citizens can begin to change the power structure that courts have created to elevate American lawyers' interests over those of other groups of society. And so, Peter, I'll turn it over to you. Well, let me begin by saying that this is an outstanding book that is deeply informed by research and a deep understanding of uh, practices of law that are often hidden from the public unless they're deeply immersed in the litigation system themselves and know of their own personal experience how it works. I have a couple of points to make about Professor Brickman's argument, most of which I agree with completely, and I'll go through several of them rather quickly in the interest of time. The first has to do with the contingency fee system. Now, Professor Brickman acknowledges that the contingent fee does have certain social benefits in providing access to the legal system to those who would not otherwise be able to afford it if their access to the courts were limited to the payment of hourly rates. They would have to pay whether they succeeded or did not succeed. So that's a social benefit, and it's a very substantial social benefit, but you make no effort to quantify it, and so it's difficult to, and indeed you don't spend much time discussing it, although you certainly acknowledge it and don't conceal it in any way, but it's difficult to know how the balance between the costs of the contingency fee system, which you emphasize throughout the book, that's by far the greatest thrust of the book, compare with these social benefits. And it may be true that everything you say about the demerits of contingency fees is true, but in some sense, the advantages of having a contingency fee system in assuring access to people who would not otherwise have it, creating greater deterrence to unsafe products and a variety of other activities through the pressure of litigation and the pressure of their claims, which would be lacking if such claims were not brought to the courts, it's difficult to know how that balance comes out. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about that. A second point is that you identify a long train of abuses and usurpations, to use the language of the Declaration of Independence, and they are very dramatic indeed and extremely disturbing. But there's a question as to how widespread they are. Are they limited mainly to high-ticket class action litigation, or are they extremely common at the lower level where most litigation occurs? And one would want to know that. And a third question has to do with the politics of tort reform. You advance a number of proposals, which make a great deal of sense, but you also acknowledge that because of the power structure in the legal profession and the role of the courts in regulating the legal profession and the role of the courts being somewhat complicit in the system that you decry, the prospects for reform are not very great. Now, if that's the case, that's not your problem. You're simply describing it. You're not obliged to change the politics of tort reform, but one wants to know whether there are more promising breezes in the air that we might be able to use to encourage us to greater efforts. A fourth question has to do with the American rule, which you rightly criticize for its encouragement of litigation that is baseless. But again, it has its benefits. 
just that the contingency fee system has its benefits. That is to say, if the English rule were adopted rather than the American rule, that is, if the loser had to pay for the attorney's fees of the winning party, then there'd be less litigation, and some of the litigation that would not be brought by reason of that uh, substitution of the English rule would be meritorious litigation that uh, simply cannot be brought because of the fear of having to incur the attorney's fees of the victor. So, again, there are benefits and there are disadvantages. You emphasize the disadvantages of the American rule. I'd want to know how they compare with one another. And then another point about the American rule, in your proposals for reform, you make some very interesting and quite persuasive suggestions that the American rule could be abandoned on a limited basis. That is to say, in certain types of cases, the loser pays rule could be substituted for the American rule, and you identify certain types of class actions with certain outcomes, which would be governed by the loser pay rule, even if the American rule continues to dominate in other types of litigation. So I agree with that least limited reform, if that's all the reform we can get, and it might make sense as well to test what the consequences of the loser pay rule would be if it were introduced on a more limited scale, and then we could learn from that experience as to what its consequences are. We can't simply look to the English experience because, as you point out, the English and continental legal systems are very different in many ways, so we need a test that applies to the American system. And then finally, there's this question of the role of the courts to administer the kinds of changes that you would adopt in the system. So, for example, if you want courts to be more rigorous, as you advocate, in assessing the legitimacy of settlements, the extent to which the members of the class are benefiting rather than just the lawyers benefiting and so forth, that is going to increase the power of the courts and our reliance on exercise of that power to remedy these injustices. And I wonder whether you have confidence that the same courts that have conspired, in your view, to create this mess will be the ones to make the kinds of difficult judgments that would be necessary to remedy its abuses. So why don't I stop there and let's hear from you. Well, thank you, Peter. Appreciate the kind words, and I also appreciate your comments with regard to issues that you wanted to raise. It is true that I make no attempt to quantify the benefit versus what I devote the book to, which is an analysis of the cost. But I do take issue with some part of that comment dealing with deterrence. It is a mantra of the law school professoriate, I think, or at least the great majority, that the tort system is a deterrent to injurious conduct. I take issue with that. I think that the evidence for deterrence is very limited. And indeed, Harvard professors have recently come out with a study that would question the deterrence rationale. I think that was Professor Mitchell and Polensky. Other professors have come out Professor Viscusi, for example, with empirical analysis that also cast doubt on the deterrence value of the tort system. So I think that in some sense, the deterrence is the holy grail. It's one that is thought of automatically as being there without any real analysis. And so I think that my book doesn't plow any new ground here, but it does accumulate in the evidence questioning the deterrence value. And I think the, the perceived deterrence value is a critical part of, of the, uh, the benefit believed to be created or realized by the tort system. Can I you, comment quickly on that? Sure, absolutely. Okay. Uh, it seems to me that the argument that you just advanced 
seeks to have it both ways, especially when combined with what's in the book. That is to say, you properly note that deterrence value is very difficult to measure and that there are a number of scholars who are somewhat skeptical of it. And I'm one of those scholars. I think deterrence works very effectively in certain areas, and in other areas we really can't be sure that it has much effect at all. And this has a lot to do with the nature of the decision makers who are being sued. But on the other hand, critics of the tort system uh, often cite the fact that the onslaught of litigation has resulted in over-deterring valuable social activity and the production of useful products and so forth because of the fear of tort liability. And I think there's much in your book that takes that position as well. So I'm wondering how you can have it both ways. That's a valid point. I do think you can have over-deterrence without general deterrence. In other words, I think the deterrence can hit the wrong target. And so without going into a lot further detail, I think that products have been deterred from the marketplace that would be socially desirable. Even as the general deterrence value in affecting manufacturers and sellers' activities is modest at best. And so that's how I would respond. You also raised the issue of the politics of tort reform and my acknowledgement that the prospects are not very good. I guess I stand by that. The greatest obstacle that I identify in the book to curbing what I call the inordinately high profits obtained by contingency fee lawyers and the consequences of those financial incentives which drive the expansion of the tort system is the nearly complete control exercised by the courts and the bar over the practice of law. And I contend that you have to wrest away some part of that control if you want to limit lawyers' rent-seeking because rent-seeking imposes high costs not only on consumers of legal services, but also on the general economy. And because control is so securely ensconced in state Supreme Courts, which have the last meaning on state constitutions and simply will not allow any dilution of the power that they've appropriated themselves, I think the prospects are grim. But I do think, and this is where I hold out some hope, that over the next decade, the heavy cost to the American economy of the self-regulating status of the bar, the legal profession, which is the result of judicial control over the practice of law, will become so manifest that pressures for change will greatly intensify. I think that the internationalization, the globalization of the practice of law, which is going on at a fast pace, will bring American law firms up in competition, European and English law firms, where they have implemented changes that allow for far more efficiency in the practice of law and allow for more competition from outside the legal profession and a system of client redress that is outside the control of the bar. And I think that the resulting economic pressures will result in some yielding by state Supreme Courts of their near total powers because of the economic pressures uh, that will be exerted against American interests. So that's the best I can offer. I wish I I could say more. Am I correct in thinking that, as I said before, that you look to judges to be much more vigilant and rigorous in their application of various criteria for attorney's fees, the same judges that have deformed the system? I do indeed, because I don't think there's any other potential source. I don't see a legislative solution. Judges have created the problem, and I think that we will have to rely on judges to ameliorate the problem. Now, in the book, 
I would also add that I disagree with you about whether this increases or decreases the power of judges. I think judges increase their power when they are solicitous of class actions because class actions have an enormous regulatory effect. The more class actions that are brought and have this regulatory effect, the more important courts are. I could certainly agree with that. What I meant was that in adopting the kinds of reforms and new criteria that you would use in assessing the appropriateness of fees in certain types of cases, the judges would have to gain more discretion than they have now, or they would have to exercise it in different ways than they do now. And it's in that sense that I envision an accretion of judicial power. Well, I think that judges would not have to increase their discretion. Right now, the dominant thought among, uh, let's say, federal judges with regard to class actions is that a bad settlement is better than a good litigation. And so judges have been approving settlements in which there is zero benefit to the class and millions of dollars of payment to lawyers and fees. And I take after judges uh, pretty severely in the book for doing so. I think it's a perverse reaction to class actions. It just encourages more of these class actions that are purely entrepreneurial, purely for the benefit of lawyers, with zero benefit to the class. Even where judges acknowledge zero benefit to the class, they go ahead and approve the settlement. Now, there's been a recent Ninth Circuit decision in In Ray Bluetooth, where maybe for the first time, there's been a serious questioning of the knee-jerk approval of class actions in which there is zero or near zero benefit to the class. And Ted Frank is the public interest lawyer who appealed that case and is responsible for that Bluetooth verdict. And it's starting to resound. A few more courts have started to seriously question settlements in class actions, not just the fees, but the settlements, which themselves are transparently worthless settlements from the point of view of the class. Judges have begun to reject the settlement, let alone the fee, on grounds that were raised in Bluetooth. So I think that there is some hope there. I would also want to address your characterization about the American rule and the English rule. I know that the prevailing view is the English rule would result in a lot less litigation. And I don't disagree with it, although I have some questions about it. But let me pose what I consider. You say that in the book, that it would reduce litigation. I think it would, but not nearly to the extent that opponents of the English rule would argue, do argue. If a would-be client comes to a lawyer with a juicy PI case in which there is no issue about liability and the value of the case is substantial in the hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, and the lawyer tells the client under an English rule jurisdiction, look, the likelihood of prevailing in this case is very, very good. I can't imagine losing this case. But I have to tell you that if we do lose the case, you'll be responsible for the defendant's legal fees. And a middle-income person will say, well, how much could that be? And it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so the client might say, look, I can't do that. I can't take that risk, even if it's very, very small. I just can't do it. It'll ruin me. Now, what's going to happen there? Well, the opponents of the English rule will say, hey, that's a meritorious case, and it's going to be deterred. And I don't think that's true at all. What's going to happen, and it seems very obvious to me, is that the lawyer will say, hey, don't worry, I'll indemnify you against any cost that you have to bear. It's worth it to me. 
And so that's what's going to happen. Is it clear to you that that would not itself raise ethical questions? To indemnify the client? I don't think it would. This, this is not a sanction that would be visited against the losing plaintiff. It is a cost. And for the lawyer to agree to indemnify, I don't think is ethically improper. If it were a sanction, that would be a different matter. So I think that one of the main arguments against the English rule is refuted by this. Now, at the same time, as you know from having reviewed the book, I'm not a great advocate of the English rule because of the politics involved. I think that the political cost of seeking the English rule may not be worth the gain. The English rule variations were adopted in Florida for a while, prevail in Alaska to currently, and had either perverse effects as in Florida or virtually undiscernible effects in Alaska. So I don't think the English rule is the holy grail, even if it were adopted. And that's why I advocate other proposals. For readers, you have a long footnote, number 10, which I just looked at again, in which you describe those effects in Alaska and Florida. It's very, very interesting and ought to give pause. Let me just raise one other point that relates to my earlier concern about increasing judicial discretion. One reform that you advocate is that judges would have to monitor contingent fees to ensure that the amount of the contingent fee was constrained by the actual risk that the lawyer was taking on. It seems to me that to enforce that, courts would have to assess risk in ways that they don't have to now because they simply accept the contingent fee arrangement that the lawyer has imposed or negotiated, as the case may be. They don't have to inquire into what is the actual risk of this particular litigation and what contingent fee would be justified by that risk. Do you think courts are capable of doing that? Is there a concern about the amount of discretion that they would have to exercise to do that? Peter, when I first started writing about contingency fees back in the late 1980s, I did come up with a proposal that included or was a central focus of which was judicial monitoring of the risk so as to determine the ethical validity of the contingency fee. After two decades of thought and research and writing on the subject, I realized that that was DOA, (laughs) dead on arrival, that there was no possible way that any of the proposals I offered when I first started writing about the subject would be acceptable because of the administrative costs and because judges simply wouldn't do it. This is why I came up with, along with two colleagues, the early offer proposal, which substitutes a market mechanism for judicial monitoring. And the market mechanism that Jeff O'Connell at the Virginia Law School and Mike Horowitz at the Hudson Institute and I came up with is the offer of a settlement, what we call the early offer because it's done before any significant work in the case has taken place. Very early in the process where there's some claim for personal injury, the alleged responsible party is contacted and told some basic facts and has the opportunity, if they want to avail themselves of it, to make this early settlement offer. And under our proposal, that is a measure of the value of the case at that time, value that the lawyer did not create. And then under our proposal, if that offer is accepted by the client, then the lawyer is limited 
to the time that he devoted, uh, he or she devoted, to assembling the facts to send the initial letter, or a much more modest contingency fee, uh, which we say is 10%. Now, suppose the client, at the urging of the lawyer, rejects the settlement and says, let's go. Well, let's assume there's either a subsequent settlement or judgment of a larger amount. For the amount of the original offer, the fee would be what that offer, if accepted, would have produced, plus a contingent percentage that is negotiated that would apply to the value the lawyer added to the claim. So we rely on a market mechanism to assess the value of claims at the time that the lawyer takes on the case. In other words, our basic fundamental position is that many tort cases have significant value before a lawyer has done any work on the case. And we could prove it if clients were allowed to auction off their PI cases. Lawyers would bid, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars for the right to represent a client for a standard contingency fee in some kinds of cases. And I don't think anybody can realistically take issue with that claim. So I have given up my initial and naive view about judicial monitoring. You're absolutely correct. It's not a viable route. And that is why, over time, I came up with the early offer proposal along with my colleagues. Good. Have I exhausted the subject now, or have we exhausted the subject? Not at all, but I think if uh, people will read the book, they will have many questions of their own. Well, Peter, I greatly appreciate your being on the other end. I think it's been an interesting conversation, and thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Faculty Book Podcast. For more podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at www.federalistsociety.com dot o r g forward slash multimedia.